Welcome to Child Neuro Chat. Let's demystify the medical world of child neurology together. Join Nurse Kim and Dr. Carrie Wilson, specialists in child neurology with the University of Utah Primary Children's Hospital. Welcome back to Child Neuro Chat. Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Matt Sweeney, an epileptologist specializing in pediatric epilepsy about drug-resistant epilepsy. Welcome, Matt. Yeah, Thank you. welcome. Thanks for having me. I think we want to start off by getting to know the the famous or infamous. Is it famous? famous. I think it's more famous <laughs> than infamous at this point. Um, uh, Dr. Sweeney. So with uh, that small introduction, tell us where you're from and why you decided to go into epilepsy. Um, born and raised in Nebraska. Uh, family is firmly entrenched there for several generations. Excellent. My wife and I are the only ones that managed to get farther than 250 <laughs> miles away. Um, and so an escape. It, yes. Well, it's, okay. Nebraska is a wonderful place to be from. But uh, I, ch- I chose neurology, actually, after going through a career in engineering, and I've always kind of been fascinated with processes and how, how things be, you know, start at one point and end at another. And uh, neurology was the one area where that could actually touch on kind of the daily aspect of being in the healthcare system. You know, how do we become who we are? And uh, it was a big deal for me to see, you know, the unique unique aspects of a newborn. And then, you know, just through some amazing uh, processing, we become these fully functioning adults. And neurology was the only chance that allowed me to really kind of look with that perspective um, when it came to healthcare. So when you started your engineering, did you th- Think that you were going to move towards epilepsy specific, or is it one of those things that just uh, kind of, or medicine in general? Oh yeah, true. Uh, and new medicine was uh, was somewhere in the future. Um, one of the things that kind of got me out of engineering was the the fact that the process of engineering is very targeted on a thing. Now the thing might have a bearing on a person, but it's a, it's kind of removed from the immediate um, care of a person. And so that's what got me sure. more into medicine is you're solving problems and you're kind of you know looking at a process only it's it's centered on a person. Um, mm. Now, as far as epilepsy, I didn't even know it was a field until I was well <laughs> into my medical training. So it was not exactly, you know, uh, predestined for me to become. Nice. It become, chose you. Yes, it did. <laughs> um, it did. I do feel like um, epilepsy maybe has more ability to integrate some of the engineering because I know. Oh, yeah. So since um, we work together quite frequently, both um, working with epilepsy patients at the Children's Hospital that your approach, especially to the technical side of epilepsy, is much more detailed and engineering. <laughs> you know, you, you take more of that engineering approach than I do, um, which I'm very appreciative of. But do you think that you <laughs> like that view. aspect yeah, of epilepsy in addition to the patients and the, the development process? Yeah, oh, definitely. That was kind of one of the many hooks um, in choosing the profession I'm, I currently am in. And it, I mean, the technical aspects, as well as the subjective aspects. I mean, I come from a weird, uh, unique background of an engineer for a father and an art teacher for a mother, and that generated all sorts of interesting <laughs> moments Ooh. in my childhood. But, um, Left and right brain yeah. all in one. But the, but the technical aspects of EEG, which are very engineering-based, um, was a big thing that got it got me into the field. But then the interpretation of the EG, which is far from a a rigid black-white phenomenon, Mm -hmm. um, was something else that just kind of drew me in. And all of that was, you know, uh, centered around the key component of epilepsy care, which is a process, you know, starting at one point, going through different checkpoints, and then ending at, you know, your new destiny, whatever that might be. And hopefully it sees your freedom. That would become his creative brain in the sense that there's not necessarily one path 
fits all approach. No, you must yeah. be very nimble in epilepsy management because yeah. every every issue faced by families is very unique, and yeah. so it becomes a. As I tell people in the clinic, it's it's a negotiation process where I kind of give you my concerns and and some rough numbers, and then we just you know chart a course that's going to be uh, the best for you know, the child. Whatever's there. Speaking of family, can you just tell us a little bit about you and your family? Uh, sure. My wife and I are both in medicine. We actually have easier time chatting about things at work <laughs> than we do <laughs> than we do at home uh, because we have three kids aged almost three, 10, and uh, now driving 15-year-old, which <laughs> has driven up my blood pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, she's so, responsible. She is yeah, head on straight, but it's it, uh, but still, still scary. I'm still bracing for the insurance Shout out impact. To the yeah. So you have three kids. Do you have any good dad jokes for us? Uh, just for that reason, I'm going to throw this out there uh, because I I feel it to to just shame my teenager to know that her dad is telling this joke. But uh, uh, it was shared at the dinner table oh. yesterday, and it was it, it goes a little something like this. Um, if you are British in the kitchen and you are British in the living room, what are you in the bathroom? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Audience. Listeners. European. European. <laughs> That's a great medical dad joke. Uh, That's really embarrassing. I You're welcome, more. children. Just, just stay tuned for the next, the next installment. <laughs> And to think for, that we get to hear these all day. Yeah, Carrie, if you're looking for epilepsy treatment or dad jokes to make you turn red, here this we are. This is the side of Dr. Sweetie that may not always be seen in the clinic setting. With our, so, with our current health care yeah. costs, those would be really expensive dad jokes. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's true, fair. No time, no time. Well, let's talk today then about drug-resistant epilepsy because this is a large portion of what you're doing in the clinic and... Um, and how big of a deal is this? So we've we've talked, for example, that um, six out of a thousand children are diagnosed with epilepsy um, in the United States, at least according to those data. How many of those six children will have drug resistant epilepsy, and what is it? Well, this number has been substantiated numerous times across the globe, and that's why it's become uh, an accepted standard put out by the International League Against Epilepsy, which sounds like they're a bunch of crime fighters, but it's actually <laughs> the kind of governing body in epilepsy care. Um, and it's it's a universal definition where if you fail two to three uh, appropriately selected anti-seizure medications and you continue to have breakthrough seizures, then you are by definition drug resistant. Okay. Uh, and to put it in context, I mean, everything in epilepsy kind of boils down into thirds. And when it comes to drug-resistant epilepsy, one-third of all epilepsy is drug-resistant. Wow. That's a lot. It is. And it's a frustrating thing for families to hear. And it's a frustrating thing for practitioners to say just because we wish that number was better. But it's, it's, a, it's something about the human brain where a third of the population dealing with this just can't find the right medicine to stop them. So if you take those six kids out of a 1,000 in school, right, so we know that six of them will have epilepsy at some point. So two of those six potentially could could have this what's called drug-resistant epilepsy. So ongoing seizures despite yeah. trying at least two standards. So even medicine. though the, you say drug-resistant, could it be a single medication or does it have to be a combo of medications? Well, that's a good question. Families bring that up a lot. I mean, it, in the definition, it just says failure of two to three Uh 
in reality, most neurology practitioners are a conservative bunch, and so you're looking at two medications likely together. Sometimes, okay. you know, it plays out where you try one, it doesn't work. You try a second, and it works for a period of time. You pull that first one off uh, to then only be on a single medication, and then it fails. Um, but most mm-hmm. of the time, you're okay. kind of faced with the prospect of two medications used concurrently. So highly possible that there's maybe like a cocktail um, of sorts that we're trying to combine and see different mechanisms of action True. from we, those medicines. Yes, there is something called rational polypharmacy, which we strive for, which is taking a bunch of different medications with different mechanisms and thinking that if we don't pick the same mechanism, we might have a better outcome. Um, we often try to implement this. There's not really great science behind its use or its effect, but nonetheless, <laughs> we, we, still like to, we still like to keep that in mind in choosing medications. I know know as a family member um, of someone with epilepsy um, that uh, it does get a little frustrating when you're in clinic and you're like, another med? Like what? Like the last one didn't work. What is is the percentage of adding three or four or five meds other than my walk-in pharmacy child? Yeah, that's an excellent (laughs) question. It's one of the major frustrations. And and it's almost like all medications that we have are equally good but not great. uh, statistically, no matter what you choose as your first line, you're going to stop seizures half the time. No matter what you choose as a second line, you know, with a few exceptions, you're going to get an extra 10%. And no matter what you choose for your third agent, you're going to get another five. Uh, or yeah. fourth or fifth or sixth. Yeah, each each additional trial yeah. beyond that gets you, I mean, the likelihood is probably 1% to 5% that it's actually going to stop your seizures. Now, that doesn't mean it won't improve your seizure burden, but when it comes to managing epilepsy, we do our best to to eradicate seizures. That's the goal. Mm. Okay. Yeah, so, so to summarize, <laughs> yeah, once you have drug-resistant epilepsy, meaning ongoing seizures despite trying at least two anti-seizure medications, and that's not just because of side effects. That's you're trying it and it's not stopping the seizures themselves. The chance of the third, fourth, fifth, sixth beyond is less than 5% each. Yes. So it doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but the chances of getting seizure freedom start decreasing. So, as a, so as a, yeah, what options do we have? Yeah, I was going to say, as a mother, like, what, what is the kind of, what, if you will, sales pitch that you give the families in trying a sixth, seventh, eighth? Well, it's important. I mean, the main reason that we, we use the label drug resistance is not to scare families uh, or to put them in some devastated category. It's mainly to open up new options for treatment. Nice. So if you've tried anti-seizure medications, you know, pharmaceuticals, then and you fail two to three, you know that that's not your best bet. So we open up the box, you know, open up the toolkit and, and, and consider additional tools. And it's it's fairly straightforward where there's, uh, there's always more medications. Um, we try to steer away from that. Uh, there's a, something called neuromodulation, which can, you know, implement a device that uses very small amounts of electricity that helpful, hopefully can reduce seizure burden. Um, that's often not a curative intervention, but it can make it better without the side effects of a, of a medicine. Uh, aggressive dietary um, intervention can be used, and that's not going caveman. It's not, uh, you know, um, gluten-free. It's it's specifically ketogenic diet, which has decades of use in drug-resistant epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lighter version of that is modified Atkins, which can be used as well with a little less uh, str- a little fewer restrictions as far as what you can choose. And then lastly, do we have a surgical intervention um, where potentially we could cure your epilepsy? Okay. So difference between like a palliative versus a curative surgical track. Good point. Surgeries can be with a palliative intent, which is just to make a bad situation better, knowing that you're not going to get seizure freedom. And then a curative effort is one where you are you are 
targeting seizures and trying to eradicate them. And that would be the option we would hope for. <laughs> yes. And, and, I think everyone would. Right? And to be honest, some, some surgeries have the best options out there for managing epilepsy. Mm, it's scary. And I think that's why uh, sometimes we have the discussion early with families of do you have focal versus generalized epilepsy? Because you might have different treatment options, not just within medication, but beyond medication, depending on the type of seizures you have, where they're coming from within the brain, um, you know, are you an option or are you a candidate for surgery, for example? So um, do we just do a brain MRI? Like what is the process to get someone um, into the discussion of, of possible surgery? Uh, good question. When you are when you're diagnosed with drug-resistant epilepsy, then the first step should be that you you should seek care at a level four epilepsy center. And that is a comprehensive mm-hmm. epilepsy center that can offer all the different, again, tools in the toolkit. Mm-hmm. Um, so folks out in smaller communities or perhaps in rural uh, communities, you should seek care at a comprehensive epilepsy center. They should have a bigger Like primary box. children's, yeah. Yeah. Yep. but there are others, and the University Absolutely. of Utah. Yeah. Absolutely. We are the only one in the Intermountain region, um, and so we have a broad area that we kind of pull folks from. But it, it, it's with the sole purpose of providing you every option um, on the table. You know, our, our job is to provide the best chance at the best outcome. That is our job. So uh, when we look at comprehensive epilepsy care, it's not to scare folks with the idea of surgery. It is purely coming from the perspective where we've seen the good that surgery and epilepsy can do. That's why we um, are very open to it as being a, a potentially curative option. And we try and kind of ease our, our patients into the idea that this might be the best option for them too, kind of demystify the whole idea of um, surgery involving the brain. I think demystify is the right word because I think that we live in a world where that's a commonplace. Uh, brain surgery is what we talk about almost daily, right? And so for families, for us to be so uh, open about it, they're like, oh my gosh, like what? <laughs> this is the brain we're talking about. Yeah, I, I think, think it is intimidating yeah. when someone, I mean, it stinks to be diagnosed with epilepsy. That's hard. And then if your seizures are not well controlled on medication, that's another Another hardship. Yeah. Yeah. And then to have to open up and now start considering, especially for someone you love and a child that you love. And you're having to make that decision for that child, right? Right. To to have to think about surgical options, especially when we're talking about brain surgery, Mm -hmm. that weighs really heavily. But I think the important thing that we're talking about here is that it should be considered early for patients oh, where and yeah, seen agreed. if it's appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. And you're you're not alone, mm-hmm. right? If 30% of people yeah. have drug-resistant epilepsy and we're having this conversation with multiple other families, that you're not yeah. alone out there. And so um, asking us for our experience, but also, you know, looking for other family members mm-hmm. that or other, you know, families out there or people that might have gone through that experience too, because mm-hmm. um, you're you're not alone. And I think that you bring up a good point. So um, even if you're not from the Intermountain region, right, and you're, say, in Florida or even in a different country, it's not inappropriate to specify or, well, specifically, excuse me, ask your neurologist, hey, what's a surgical option for me? See what they know in the region of where you live. And maybe it is a matter of needing to look outside of your region into an area that has far more tools in their toolbox because this is what they do in a more common 
sense, if you will. I know that one of the things that families will bring up um, in clinic uh, or on the phone when I talk to them is the fact that, um, well, why didn't my neurologist talk to me about surgery earlier? Um, and I don't, I don't know the answer necessarily. I'm like, I don't know. I can't answer for that neurologist. But um, I, do you find as um, your colleagues that, uh, say, are in a general neurology practice, is it – Faux pas. <laughs> well, it's scary? funny you bring that up. They've actually done studies to see what are the what are the contributors to what we call the treatment gap, which is you know folks receiving the right level of care for their epilepsy. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot of kind of stigmatism when it comes to brain surgery that it's you know it, you know it's too big of a risk that the functional implications are too great. It's too scary. The seizures are well controlled enough. You know, mm-hmm. saying, oh, yeah. they only have a seizure enough, this, every yeah. six months. When, the risk of going to surgery is higher. Which, which is something we always kind of calculate when we're making decisions regarding surgery. But, again, the bottom line of, of any epilepsy center is to do their, their best at stopping seizures. And stopping means stopping. It doesn't yeah. mean just, oh, yeah. now it's every week when it was every day. That might be a significant improvement for the individual, but it's still not where we want to be. Still not our goal. But we also weigh in, just because you come talk to someone about surgery doesn't mean you have to get surgery, right? Right. So I think that's the important part that um, we try to reinforce of... That's a good point. Refer them to an epilepsy center early so that they at least know what their options are Mm -hmm. outside of this podcast, for example, or reading on, (laughs) you know, uh, online. Mm -hmm. So that... Because it's tailored to each person because... If we don't think it's safe or the, you know, if the risks outweigh yeah. the benefits, we will be honest with yeah. you, right? Yeah. And so everyone um, should be on board with knowing what their options are for each case. Exactly. Again, it gets back to it's a negotiation process. We tell you what we're worried about, you know, what our mm-hmm. evidence supports and what we think, in our opinion, are the best choices. Now, that doesn't mean you have to take it. Yeah. Um, it's purely about giving you information so you can make an informed decision. And I think in the society in which we live in, there's so much – I always call it the Dr. Google, right? Like you can go on and you can Google anything. Um, and why wouldn't families want to know the f- – the full spectrum of treatment for an epilepsy child, um, in this case, um, that would be something right. I would want, right? Like to be able to know what are all my options. I can still choose not to do them, mm-hmm. but I would at least like to know my options. I think it also instills a piece of hope. Yeah. Because I, I think what you were alluding to is trying medications can be very disappointing if they're mm-hmm. not controlling seizures. Yeah. And too. people start so losing hope that mm-hmm. this will ever get under control. Yeah. And I personally feel like an epilepsy surgery clinic, we have a whole clinic yep. at our mm-hmm. institution um, for these patients, both before and after surgery. What do you think, Matt? Uh, do you feel like we ha- we can still offer hope to some of these families who have failed medication? Have you seen some good outcomes? Uh, that clinic is a highlight of my career for the most part because, mm-hmm. I mean, neurology is kind of notorious for um, having challenges in effectively treating different diseases that are, you know, based in the brain and the nerves. I mean, it's a tough thing to kind of provide therapies for. But in, in epilepsy, specifically with epilepsy surgery, I mean, it is it is a rush to be able to, I mean, to, to hit a home run when it comes to mm-hmm. intervening and, and giving a new life to somebody that's been, you know, just devastated by seizures. So, I mean, that's the high point. Uh, I would take any trainee, uh, any medical trainee that wants to see how, you know, neurologists can do some good, uh, and, and not just neurologists, the team, because an epilepsy management is very team-based. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a surgeon, there's a neuropsychologist, neuroradiologist, there's, you know... Uh, Multifaceted. Exactly. There's a lot of team, there are a lot of players on the team, but to see 
families kind of have a new future after we intervene with a surgery. I mean, it, it is a big deal. It's like building that trust component within your team. And then um, I find that after surgery's taken place and we are kind of getting used to this new normal of no seizures, that's, it's a different kind of trust that we're rebuilding. And so I think that it's, it's a trust continuum, if you will, because um, seizures true. don't yeah, play families, nice. Families go through a lot with us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they do. But, yeah. um, well, that's been really helpful. Thank you. I think um, the main takeaways here are there are options outside of medication if medicines aren't controlling seizures in your child or yourself. And ask, ask, <laughs> yeah, ask those questions. If you've tried a few medicines and you're continuing to have seizures, um, either ask your neurologist or ask for a referral to an epilepsy surgery center or a comprehensive you know, level four epilepsy center that can talk about what the options are mm-hmm. uh, safely um, with you and your family and, and come up with a plan. And don't lose hope. <laughs> don't lose hope. And we're not against meds. I think that as a surgical team, it's a lot of times people are like, oh, well, you're going to talk about surgery because you like surgery. But absolutely not. We're all about presenting all of the options. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Trying to find the best fit for, for the family and the patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the outcomes, right? Nice. Exactly. Yeah. Any more dad jokes that you can share with us? <laughs> Boy, I'm not sure if, <laughs> to really if the pull internet this around. is yeah. ready for my dad jokes. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll think about one and uh, post it once we get this on social media. Absolutely. So go check us out on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram, Child Neuro Chat. And um, thanks for joining us today. Until then, thanks, thanks for, for the, the chat. chat. Information on this podcast is intended for general education and discussion and does not replace medical advice from your own healthcare professional. Opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect that of the University of Utah or Intermountain Healthcare. Visit us online or follow us on social media for more information. Child Neuro Chat is recorded in the audio studio of the Marriott Library at the University of Utah with editing and mixing services provided by Robert J. Nelson. <laughs>